Hey everybody, it's good to see you. Uh, my name is Brian and I'm one of the pastors of the Summit, Summit family. Uh, beloved, we miss gathering with you, but we pray this finds you well. Looking forward to press forward uh, together. And uh, also just want to give a special welcome. If this is the very first time you've ever joined us in any capacity, we're really glad that you're with us. Um, I hope you don't feel uh, the slightest bit of embarrassment that maybe it's taken a global crisis uh, to lead you to wrestling with who God is and what he wants to do in your life. Don't feel embarrassment. Feel welcome from us. Really glad that you're here. And uh, we, we are expecting God to do something really significant uh, in your life. Uh, I'm going to start this first ever digital gathering of the Life of the Summit um, with a positive image, literally an image of my uh, middle uh, daughter, Gracie. Here she is here. Isn't she uh, incredibly sweet? Just so cute looking. Uh, so we're in a season of life. We have three kids, three little kids. And the way that my wife and I have set up uh, the bedtime routine is that my wife takes our son, uh, our youngest, and puts him to bed. I take the two older girls. I take Hannah. I take Gracie. And every night before we uh, go to bed, uh, we pray. And the way we pray is we hold hands in a circle. Gracie gets to go first because she is the youngest. And um, watching Gracie pray, she's only two years old. She'll be three in July. Uh, getting to watch Gracie pr uh, pray nightly is um, an incredible privilege. And she prays for the sweetest thing. She'll just be like, God, uh, I thank you for Frozen 2. Like, I thank you for uh, Anna and Elsa. And she'll be like, uh, God, I want to ask you that you help Riley listen tomorrow. Riley's our 10-year-old dog. Uh, so that probably will be an unanswered prayer request. Uh, but last night, actually, we were doing our same routine and putting down uh, Hannah and Gracie and praying. And last night, uh, Gracie prayed, God, take away the coronavirus. Um, she said it cuter than that. She said coronavirus, which is the sweetest way, kind of cutest way to say uh, a disease like that. But um, it struck me in that moment just how much what it is we're going through is impacting everybody in different ways. Here she is. I did not, I did not imagine my two-year-old's first five-syllable word would be coronavirus. Um, this is a unique moment. It's hard a lot of times to know, are you living in a moment of historical significance? This is not a moment where it's hard to figure that out. If you have kids right now, and they're in an age that they can comprehend what's going on, your kids are going to tell their grandkids someday about the way that all of this went down and what their experiences were like. And so what I want to do before I jump into the text that we just had read for us, is I want to begin with a challenge and then a question. A challenge and then a question. The challenge is this, and I'm not trying to be uh, in any way dismissive of the difficulty of the cultural moment, but what I want to challenge you to do is to try to, for a moment, rise above the chaos of what's unfolding right now and envision your life 10 years into the future sitting around dinner tables, sitting around campfires, sharing stories of what life was like and what is unfolding right now in the cultural moment. I want to challenge you to think about that. The question I want to ask you with that is, what sort of stories do you want to tell? What sort of stories do you want to tell to those you love the most? What kind of legacy is that you want to leave in such a uh, difficult moment? What kind of stories do you want to share around the dinner table and the campfire uh, a decade from now? Uh, hearing from many of you, the story you want to share is one of faith over fear. Um, 
But it's difficult to demonstrate faith over fear in a cultural moment like this one. I think just when we feel like we've settled the storms of our heart, uh, you know, we go on Instagram and we see uh, otherwise perfectly reasonable people uh, coming to blows over a final roll of toilet paper at a Walmart. And no matter what you've willed yourself to believe, it's, it's almost impossible in that moment not to have this overwhelming sense of, we are not going to be okay. We want to write these stories of faith over fear, but the question is, how do we do that when everything and everyone around us seems to be uh, freaking out? And here's what I just want to encourage you with, beloved, is that what we need so desperately is for Jesus to speak into and to calm the storms of our hearts. For Jesus to speak, for his presence to be manifest. Words have power. That's why... uh, If somebody has built you up or torn you down uniquely with their words, you can probably still visualize what that experience was like, even if it was many, many years ago. Words have power, and the words of Jesus have unique power. Actually, a story that we're going to look at in a uh, few months reflects this reality where Jesus and his closest friends and followers, the disciples, are caught in the midst of this terrible storm, and Jesus speaks, and with a single word, calms that chaos. The disciples actually cry out, what sort of man is this that even winds and see obey him? Uh, Actually, I really love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones tells the story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, what kind of man is this? They ask themselves anxiously. Even the winds and waves obey him. The wind and the waves recognize Jesus' voice. They had heard it before, of course. It was the same voice that made them in the very beginning. Jesus calms the chaos of our lives through the gift of his kingly presence. And one of the themes that we see in Matthew is one of the ways that Jesus manifests his kingly presence in the lives of his people, of kingdom citizens, is through speaking into their hearts. And so that's our posture of what it is that we need, as well as in the book of Matthew, we find ourselves now at a place where Jesus is going to do something called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Um, maybe the most famous sermon in the history of the world. It probably is. And it's three chapters of Jesus in an uninterrupted fashion teaching people of the goodness of what life looks like when he is king. What we are seeing and what I want you to carry in as we hear Jesus speak into our hearts as we step into the Sermon on the Mount is this posture of expectancy um, almost as we see the chaos that we, like the disciples, would say, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. So I have three points for you as we dive into this text. First, let's talk about the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read for you chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So let me give you some context of where we've been in Matthew, as well as let me sum up what we would have covered last week uh, at the end of Matthew 4, uh, but we got canceled. Um, Reminder also, you can go back and listen to our podcast. Everything we've done in Matthew up to this point uh, is there. Um, What we would have looked at last week in Matthew chapter 4 is Jesus kicking off his public ministry, and he kicks off his public ministry with this uh, declaration. This is chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we're seeing Jesus is a king. This is one of the themes of Matthew we've been looking at repeatedly. Jesus is a king. He's come to establish a kingdom. And immediately after this, he's begun welcoming people in as kingdom citizens. 
Uh, we actually see this in chapter 4, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So what you're seeing is this chain reaction, this sequencing that's very, very purposeful. Jesus is king. He's come to establish a kingdom, and he's now inviting in citizens to both live within his reign and rule, but don't miss this. What we're actually seeing with these two brothers, when he calls these two brothers, Peter and Andrew, fishers of men, he's inviting these men to invite other people into the goodness of his reign and rule. From the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus calling people to tell people about the unparalleled goodness of life in his kingdom. I'm not only calling you, but I'm calling you to call others. Now, the reason there's now a crowd in the context of chapter five, the reason there's a crowd around Jesus, as we just saw in verse one, is because Jesus' kingdom has gained traction. And this is not only because uh, these men have been very successful in inviting other people as well, but far more significantly because Jesus has been in this rhythm of showing and telling what the goodness of the kingdom looks like. Jesus has been proclaiming the kingdom. Jesus has been demonstrating the kingdom. It's like my, my oldest daughter, she's in kindergarten and she gets super excited for like when it's show and tell day at school. And basically Jesus has been in the midst of the greatest game of show and tell in the history of the world. He has been talking about the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom. We see this in 423. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then Jesus shows the kingdom. It says, uh, he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Proclamation, demonstration, proclamation, demonstration. That was the rhythm of Jesus' life. And it has now reached this point in chapter five, verse one, that Jesus now has this crowd gathering around him. And now he, for three uninterrupted chapters, will declare the unparalleled goodness of what life looks like when he is king, as well as in many ways, the upside down nature of life in the kingdom. So we see then in chapter five, verse two, and Jesus opened his mouth and taught them saying. All right, so what is it that Jesus is gonna talk about then? Uh, we're gonna look at the first two declarations about kingdom life. The first is blessed are the poor in spirit. Look with me at verse three. He says this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let's look first at that first word there, Verse three, blessed. Actually, if you look at chapter uh, five, verses three through 11, what you find is every single statement that Jesus makes begins with this statement of blessed. And that's historically why this portion of the Sermon on the Mount was known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not just the proclamation of who will be truly happy and truly blessed underneath the reign and rule of Jesus. But as we already said, in many ways is showing us the instinctually upside down nature uh, of the kingdom that Jesus came to bring in and invite us into as well. Okay, so he says, blessed, who's blessed? He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So notice that Jesus is not simply uh, praising uh, poverty in general, but a particular expression of poverty when he says, blessed are those who are poor, look at that, in spirit. To sum this up, this first beatitude is a call to empty ourselves of all self-righteousness and self-reliance. 
That's what the first beatitude is about, a call to empty ourselves of all self-righteousness and self-reliance. I'm going to read for you uh, a quote of a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. I have this book here just to remind you. We recommended this, but this entire book is about the Sermon on the Mount. So if you found yourself with some uh, newfound free time in the coming weeks or months, this would be a great book to uh, binge read uh, as you are looking for something to do. Here's what uh, he says about this first beatitude. He says, we cannot be filled until we are first empty. You cannot fill with new wine a vessel which is partly filled already with old wine until the old wine has been poured out. It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. If we are truly Christian, we shall not rely upon our natural birth. We shall not rely upon the fact that we belong to certain families. We shall not boast that we belong to certain nations or nationalities. We shall not build up on natural temperament. We shall not rely upon money or any wealth we may have. The thing about which we shall boast will not be the education we have received or the particular school or college to which we may have been, but instead that we look to God in utter submission to him and in utter dependence upon him and his grace and mercy. Uh, what he's saying here, what I think this first beatitude is, is getting at, is something we say around the summit a lot. It's not original to me, but I just want to remind you of it, that if dependency on God and intimacy with God is the goal, if the good life is found in dependency on God and intimacy with God, then weakness is to our advantage. And here we see this reality is actually affirmed in the upside down nature of life in the kingdom. In the kingdom of man, weakness is punished. Survival of the fittest is praise. If you demonstrate the least bit of weakness, if you expose just a little bit of brokenness about you, what we are fearful of a lot of times in that moment is that we will be punished or we will be abandoned. And probably any of you who are watching this can... uh, Go back to a moment in your personal story that's been deeply painful because you can remember moments where you were abandoned because your weakness was exposed. The consequence is we get put in this very weird place where we have to project uh, an image of ourselves that's something far uh, better than what actually exists in reality and it becomes entirely exhausting to maintain this particular charade. What if it didn't have to be that way? And what if this is one of just the infinite, tangible expressions of the unparalleled goodness of life in the kingdom? Because here's the great thing about the upside-down nature of the kingdom. In the kingdom of man, weakness is punished and it leads to us being abandoned. In the kingdom of God, it is safe to be weak. It is safe to be broken. It is safe to be exposed. And what the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims is that when God saw the worst in us, he did not abandon us, but he went to the cross and to die for us. This is tremendous cult, uh, comfort in the cultural moment. Like anybody feeling weak right now? Anybody feeling uh, vulnerable right now? Anybody feeling exposed right now? Isn't it amazing how quickly life changed uh, overnight? And we can't go to our favorite restaurants. We can't get with our favorite people. We can't just hop on an airplane and go somewhere fun to distract ourselves. Uh, we have been empty. I, I mean, I was, I was thinking about this. I'm actually right now in this moment supposed to be in Disneyland with my oldest daughter, Hannah. We had planned months ago 
this uh, special daddy-daughter trip. She's turning six, and when she turns six, we'll take you anywhere. And I'll tell you, I, I'm not trying to say like our situation is, like our situation is better than literally millions of people around the globe. I'm not trying to be uh, in any way dismissive of that. At the same time, do you know how hard it is to look a six-year-old in the eyes and tell her her trip to Disneyland got canceled? It is, the, it is just terrible. It's terrible. Uh, many of us in, or all of us in a diversity of ways have experienced what it means to be emptied over the past week, and we will in the coming weeks and months as well. And I want to challenge you, as you've been emptied, to think about what are you going to fill that void with? For some of you, you're going to feel the void. Uh, you're going to feel the propensity to fill the void with just anxiety, you're trying to control that which you can't control, not uh, emotionally healthy, in an emotionally healthy way, processing your feelings. Others of you, you're going to fill that void with distraction. Others of you, you're going to fill that void with self-medication, and you're just going to drinking, drugs, binging, whatever it is trying to just shut yourself down from a lot of what it is you're feeling. And here's the, the challenge I want to give you, beloved. The challenge I want to give you as all of us have been universally emptied over this past week is that what you fill that void with is a posture of expectancy. That you fill that emptiness with a posture of expectancy. Because yes, in the kingdom of man, emptiness and weakness is punished. But in the kingdom of God, we are expectant when we are emptied. When we are emptied, we are take Jesus at his word that we will be filled. And when our lack of power is exposed, the power of the kingdom is ready to break into our lives. So blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Finally, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, it's crucial for you to understand this. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount as a whole is not just a random assortment of teaching. It has a very purposeful order to them. Jesus says, blessed are you when you're emptied, and blessed are you when that emptying leads us to a place of mourning. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So again, look at this sequence. You've been emptied. That leads you to mourning. It leads you to a posture of lament. And again, in no way am I trying to put a bow on a terrible cultural situation. Um, I do feel, though, that one of the unusual reasons that I'm so encouraged in the particular cultural moment is because we are universally mourning that the, the reality that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be that we are universally experiencing that there is a radical disparity between the way things are and the way things are supposed to be. The reality is, is that the gospel that Jesus came to proclaim, the kingdom he came to usher in, is not good news when your posture towards it is, it is an interruption to the heaven on earth you've already created through your own power and privilege. And I think in a city like Denver, there's so much power, there's so much privilege, there's so much we are having the time of our life. A lot of times the posture towards Jesus is, I'll take a little bit of you, but I don't want all of you because all of you in total submission to you would be an interruption to the life I always wanted. And to be honest, I'm doing quite fine. Thank you very much. 
I have these hundreds of world-class restaurants I can choose from. Uh, a Saturday can consist of me uh, both hitting all these cool urban wineries and skiing all in the same day. And so like, how is it good news that something outside of this would break in? But when we come to this place of dependency, when we come to this place of weakness, and when we come to this place of emptying, and we recognize the reality that there is a radical disparity between the way things are and the way things are supposed to be uh, well-beloved, the gospel actually starts to come alive for what its true definition is. It starts to become good news. The promise here of the Beatitudes is that with this emptying, there is this mourning. We have lamented and mourned a lot over the past week. But we are not left to mourn or lament on our own. But with this emptying comes a filling. And with this filling comes what we have longed for all along, comfort. And I encourage you, if you've been with us in Matthew at all, to recognize that comfort is not some uh, uh, intangible concept. Comfort is a person. Jesus himself calls the Holy Spirit of God the comforter. That when we are emptied, as we have been emptied, he fills us and he testifies to us that we are the beloved, that our fundamental identity, if we are in Christ Jesus, are as the beloved sons or daughters of God. And even in many ways, I've thought about, you know, as a dad to young kids, your kids are in crisis all the time. The smallest thing can lead to them losing their minds. And one of the things I love about kids is that when they're in frightening situations, they want something more than just their circumstances to be fixed. Actually, the first place they look in a really frightening situation is not the fixing of their circumstances, but they are lifting up their eyes and they are looking for mom or dad. They know if they can just be embraced, held, comforted, encouraged, affirmed, reminded of their identity as child, everything will be okay, even if the circumstances are exactly the same. And so we are, here we are in this cultural moment where things are very, very frightening and we lift up our eyes. And as much as we want our circumstances to change, and I hope you are petitioning to God and asking God, do not delay, change this for us. Make all things new, God. Make all things new. There is something we want even more than that. We desire the comfort that comes with the presence of the indwelling of the Spirit of God. He is the comforter. He indwells us. And he testifies to us, as Paul says in Romans, that we are the beloved, that we are sons, that we are daughters. And our safety and security is found in that glorious reality. So from here, we will sing, asking God to uh, make that a reality we don't just think about, but we actually experience. Uh, you also should have a communal liturgy that you can walk through with uh, people in your groups. And again, I encourage you to go to our website to get connected if you're not connected yet. But I pray that you are just um, are comforted by that reality as we uh, close our time, is that God has not forsaken you, he has not abandoned you, but he's actually invited you to be emptied, he's invited you to be filled, he's invited you to reaffirm and to experience in a brand new way your identity as beloved son or daughter of God. We love you, but most importantly, the Father loves you. Let me pray for you to experience that. Father, we love you. We're thankful for even just the gift of the technology to be able to do this as we are a scattered people. And we pray that in this 
particular time, you would not only uh, help us know these things are true, but to experience them and feel them uniquely upside down uh, to experience the goodness of life in the kingdom. We have been emptied over this past week, Father. And we pray that that emptiness is filled with a posture of expectancy. Expectancy that you will fill us. Expectancy that you will meet us. Expectancy that you will comfort us. Expectancy that you will sweep us up into your arms. And just like any good parent, will affirm us and say to us, you are the beloved. And even though your circumstances are scary, I will never leave you or forsake you. God, let us believe that and experience that anew in this coming week. And we ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus.